Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 25th, 2023, getting towards the weekend, for some of us at least, an opportunity to catch up with our sleep. I mean, spent the whole week working. We've done a number of shows recently on the issue of sleep. We did one a couple of weeks ago with Quinn Eastman, a medical uh, writer in the United States, about uh, a woman who wouldn't or couldn't wake up, a, a book about hypersomnia and the science of sleepiness. Talked to me about a woman, uh, an Atlanta lawyer, who would sleep up to 50 hours in stints. It's Astonishing. And of course, the reverse is our fear of not sleeping enough. Lisa Lewis was on the show talking about the connection between teenage anxiety, at least in her view, and sleep deprivation. Her book is The Sleep Deprived Teen. Uh, earlier this week, I also had a fascinating conversation with the Columbia University neuroscientist, Raphael Yuste. Uh, he has a new book out. Uh, lectures in neuroscience, and he told me, and he knows as much about this as anyone, that we mostly still don't really understand what sleep is, which makes it tricky in terms of giving us advice. Uh, a few months ago, we had Eric Prather, a San Francisco-based doctor, on how we sleep better. Um, he has a new book out, The Sleep Prescription, Seven days to unlock your best rest, a promise, although if we don't really understand what sleep is, it's hard to understand how we're going to figure out how to sleep less or more. Uh, my guest today has another take, another way of thinking about sleep. Uh, Dr. Catherine Coveney is a sociologist of sleep at Loughborough University, uh, and she's the co-author of an intriguing new book, Technosleep. Frontiers, Fictions, Futures. She's joining us from Nottingham, uh, where she lives uh, in the Midlands of England. Uh, Catherine, uh, congratulations on the new book. What is a sociologist of sleep? What do you do? What's your, uh, uh, your, you, what, do you, what do you study or think about in terms of being a sociologist of sleep? Yeah, so I've I've studied sleep from a sociological perspective for about the past 15 years. And I still get asked that question quite a bit. What does what is the sociology of sleep? What does a sociologist find interesting about sleep? And for me, um, what I do is I talk to people mainly um, about their experiences of sleep, about their attitudes towards sleep, about how they manage sleep in their everyday lives, about their every night experiences. So it's very much looking at sleep as kind of a biosocial um, practice, something that we all do every day. But all of those things around sleep as well are interesting to me, the routines, the rituals, the things that we do to try and get better sleep or less sleep or more sleep. So are you, in a sense, taking it out of its medical sphere and suggesting that uh, we need to think about sleep or we should think about sleep in a non-medical cultural sense? Um, I think in, in a way, um, 
a lot of the people who work in the sleep field see sleep as a very interdisciplinary thing anyway. So I wouldn't say we're necessarily taking it out of its medical context, but very much acknowledging beyond the biology. So, you know, sleep as this as a biosocial process. So we acknowledge, you know, we have to sleep. It's part of part of our being. We all need to to breathe oxygen, to eat food, to drink water and to sleep, to stay alive. And there's no getting around that. So it is a biological thing that we do. Um, but just that it's also a psychological impacts and psychological things around sleep and also the social aspects to sleep. So it's, it is a social practice. It's embedded in our everyday lives, uh, the structures of the way that we live, the way we organise our lives. And I think that is acknowledged within medicine to some extent as well. Is uh, Raphael Euster right in terms of making sense of sleep and dreams? He, he suggested in my conversation with him that we, we still don't really quite understand, for example, why or how we dream. In, in, in your view, is that correct? I think that there's there's still a lot of questions around around sleep, around dreaming, around what happens when we when we sleep. And there's some of the things that we've been really interested in in the book is, you know, can technology unravel some of those mysteries around sleep? Can it give us answers to some of those puzzles and those questions? And and ultimately, do we want to know? Do we do we want to unravel those mysteries of sleep or do we quite like having sleep as as that bit of kind of unknown in our lives where we can just switch off but i want to get to techno sleep in a a, a few minutes but i I wonder how we in the 2020s 20 early 21st century how do we compare and contrast with other civilizations when it comes to thinking about making sense of sleep perhaps fetishizing it or ignoring it particularly perhaps comparing ourselves with antiquity or the middle ages or the early modern period what's so distinctive about how we think about sleep i think there's um there's different ways that we can kind of approach that question so i'm not a historian of sleep but i know that some people have written written books on on this um sasha hanley is a historian in the uk you might have um, come across some of her work where she's looked back at to how how people slept and how they um kind of try to get better sleep I guess as far back as the middle ages in the 16th century looking at at things and tools that people could use to try and improve sleep so I think trying to get better sleep isn't isn't something that's new um and then there's also historians um, that have written about the different forms that sleep has taken throughout history. So you've perhaps heard about the theory that we used to have two sleeps rather than one. Yeah, we had someone on the, I can't remember, we had someone on the show on that. And it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and I think that was, that was, um, that information was gathered by looking back through literature, through different periods of time. Through the Elizabethan period and suggesting that yeah uh, the literature of the time suggested that people slept more than once a day yeah and i think and there's different ways that we can we can sleep today so there's polyphasic sleep patterns that some people might adopt which is more shorter periods of naps throughout the 24 hour cycle but i think in our in our world today we have this norm don't we this sleep norm that we think that normal sleep is going to bed in a bed, in a bedroom, at nighttime for a six, a six to eight hour block 
of sleep. And, and that's what we have in our minds when we think, oh, that's normal sleep. And anything that deviates from that is kind of abnormal in one way or another. But what's interesting to me as a sociologist is that actually for lots of groups of people um, across different societies and cultures and within dif- uh, the same society, people don't actually sleep like that. So there's lots of different forms that sleep can take. I want to get, as I said, to techno sleep. We'll do it after the break. We'll specifically yeah. address what you're arguing and, and, and observing in the book. But I wonder whether the most significant um, event, perhaps, in the history of sleep was the invention of electric lighting. Did that change everything in the sense that sleep, I assume, pre-electric lighting was always associated with darkness because everyone lived in perpetual darkness and with electric lighting everything changed yeah i think it has been a big juncture in the way that um societies sleep and obviously you know with the lights on you can you can stay up much later than you would have in um traditional societies i mean they have candlelight and other forms of light and fire so it's not to say you know it wasn't possible to see and to stay up but it was much more common to sleep more with with the natural seasons I suppose with the with the light um, and the dark cycles of the natural world and we've become more detached from that with with electric light um, and there's there's quite a lot of studies around the impacts of that on people um, and thinking of today as well you know trying to to go to bed in a darkened bedroom is one of the kind of the hallmarks of sleep hygiene. So trying to get better sleep is to have that dark environment that's really good for for your hormones, for melatonin, things like that, um, um, to to get that good sleep. But then if you think about our bedroom environments today, they're kind of littered with technological digital devices, lights flashing, um, our, our phone, our mobile phones, if we sleep with those by the bedside lighting up. So we're exposed to lots of light during the night especially blue light and there are studies that show that really does knock our sleep cycles off kilter so it's taken for granted i guess that we sleep better in the dark and in silence is that right i mean i assume in previous civilizations particularly people who live together uh, maybe people who would work through the night that some people have to sleep in noisy environments and in light environments Yeah, and I think there was a kind of a civilizing process, if you like, to do with sleep around the Victorian era, where before then it was it was common, it was very common for people to sleep in more overcrowded um, kind of bedrooms where you'd have family beds and whole families sleeping together. And during the Victorian era, era, we saw kind of the more private bedrooms and people sleeping on their own and having like seeking out that more solace during sleep. Um, But I think, you know, even today, and that's one of the things that interests me is uh, as a sociologist is that, you know, sleep is a very relational thing. So lots of us don't sleep on our own. We sleep with our partners and that can have a really big impact on our sleep, especially if you've got a partner who snores um, or who, who gets up in the night for the loo or, if you've got pets, lots of people sleep with their pets on their beds and in their bedrooms that can wake them up. And or, uh, uh, or if you've got young children, that's I was going to say exactly like me with if you've got young children. And how old are your kids? 
my youngest is three. Um, so she still wakes up every night and wakes Did up. Did you wander into your room and make herself <laughs> at home in your bed? She does, yeah. She comes and gets in next to me and my partner goes and gets in her bed every night. So we do a little bit of a bed swap. Um, I also, my middle daughter's seven, she um, is disabled. So I also do a lot of caring during the night. Yeah, um, oh my God. And things. So that's a norm for a lot of people. There's lots of people who are carers, especially if you think about kind of my generation, we're getting to the point now where our parents um, often need care during the night and people have elderly relatives who live with them helping them get up to the toilet uh, having conditions like dementia which can really impact on sleep and sleep cycles so there's lots and lots of things that impact on our sleep you know we're not just on our own in a bedroom willing ourselves to sleep at a certain time uh, there's lots of things that can kind of constrain when we can sleep and impact on our sleep quality uh, Katie, uh, I, I think it was John Lennon who remarked that uh, even even the Queen of England needs sometimes to go to the bathroom, or if he didn't, I'm sure he thought that. Uh, I, I wonder uh, whether the same is true of sleep. Did You mentioned Queen Victoria. Did people think of the Queen of England or aristocrats as sleeping differently from ordinary people? Oh, I'm not sure. It's not that's not something I've looked into, to be honest. I've, I've I mean, mainly... was it a form of privilege, perhaps, that 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 the Queen of England would sleep more or less than everyone else, or the King of England? I suppose there would be an assumption that they would have a, a lovely sleep environment with a nice bed and a nice safe place to sleep. I think that's one of the the other things that's really important when when writing this book and thinking about sleep and sleep environments and how you know, everything in our lives can impact on sleep. One of the things that we, we talked about quite a bit was how, uh, about the inequalities around sleep and around yeah. how lots of people just don't have that safe, warm, private sleep environment to sleep in. You know, thinking about people who are homeless or living in hostels, you know, families that don't have anywhere to sleep, people that have been displaced due to things like war, institutionalization, prisons, people in hospitals so we just there was so many people prisons in particular where they're woken up throughout the night we are talking with Catherine Coveney the co-author of a, an intriguing new book Technosleep Frontiers Fictions and Futures we're going to talk take a short break not long enough for anyone to have a nap just to credit our advertiser our sponsor Liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics I'll run a short ad for uh, for a wonderful product, and then we'll be back with Catherine, who will talk more about the book Technosleep. So don't go away. Don't fall asleep, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can also subscribe there. We are talking with Catherine Coveney, the co-author of Technosleep, Frontiers, Fictions and Futures, 
Speaking of frontiers, uh, Katie, I live in Silicon Valley, uh, frontier of the future. We had a show, we've done a number of these uh, with a technologist and investor, Sergey Young, on the science and ethics of living to 200, believing that we can live forever. How, in terms of frontiers, are people rethinking sleep uh, when, in terms of your new book, Technosleep? How, how are the the visionaries, if that's the right word, of Silicon Valley embracing or perhaps rejecting sleep? I know that many of them fetishize sleep one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, so that's a really interesting kind of question to, to pose. Um, and that fetishization of sleep, so getting kind of better quality sleep is something that a lot of, um, or getting kind of less less sleep but better quality so better quality sleep in less time again is something that seems to be really desirable so what we did in for part of our research for the book is that we we had a look um we did some kind of a a search online for everything that mentioned sleep and futures so we looked at lots of um, tech reports and uh, media articles and things written by futurists as well as looking in the scientific literature as well to see how the future of sleep was being imagined across these different domains and um, we found some really interesting discussions around you know that these ideas that science and technology bringing them together would really help us solve those puzzles and mysteries around sleep and lead to better sleep um, medicines and drugs to treat sleep disorders. But also these other kind of techno-progressive visions of the future, where these future technological developments would be able to help people to customise their sleep patterns and practices to fit in with their demands and desires so there'd be tech around it was imagined or there will be that can help us kind of sleep better that will be able to guide us uh, guide our dreams towards having the right dreams so we wake up in a good mood um wake well, there's up a sort of a brave new world quality <laughs> to that in the sense there of is. having cheerful thoughts piped into us so we wake up happy wake up feeling good waking up at the optimal point of our sleep cycle so we you know we feel better we don't feel that drowsy grogginess when our alarm goes off um so some of these texts are already around so it's almost seeing like they're going to get better and this will this will help us more um but the message really was in the in the the articles that we found that you know the the future of sleep is technology it is technological sleep um there are even some kind of visions and imaginaries that we'd be able to use technology to make sleep optional in the future, where people might be able to use genetic engineering or brain stimulation or pharmaceuticals to kind of sleep less or not even not sleep at all. Isn't that true, though? You say the future of sleep is technology, but it's also the present and the past that sleep is inseparable from technology. Yeah, that's that's kind of where we're going with our techno sleep concept. We're thinking um, about it in that sleep and technology have always been entangled with each other to some extent. Um, we did one of the questions we asked ourselves actually was, can we can we go back to a point in time? Can we can we find some time where sleep was pure, 
pure sleep or pristine sleep or non-technological sleep. And that was a really, really difficult exercise for us to do because we just couldn't get to that point. So if you think of all the technology around sleep as well, it's like, well, you know, sleep and technology have always been entangled with each other to some extent. Well, it's a sort of um, an imaginary and utop- a utopian moment, which is which isn't possible it's an impossibility yeah it's like how how do you ever get that how do you ever get that completely why do we long for that is it a kind of nostalgia perhaps for previous species like existence perhaps perhaps i think um so in one of the chapters of the book we we analyzed a lot of science fiction stories that involved sleep and involved Uh, sleep technology relationships so weird and wonderful things being imagined that don't exist today things like being able to um, donate your sleep or plunge whole societies into insomnia or states of hypersomnolence and things like that Um, one of the things um, that really surprised us actually was by analyzing those science fiction narratives was that very thing that um, in these in these stories it was technically was always bad for your sleep. It was kind of seen as alienating us from that vital aspect, that critical anchor of our humanity that we all need to sleep. Um, so, you know, um, that natural, that pristine, that natural sleep was kind of pitted against this imagined techno sleep. Tell me a little bit more about this book. Um, it has five authors. Why couldn't just one person write it? I mean, it seems like it's an interesting project, but I'm guessing you or one of your fellow authors quite capable of writing it. How can five people work on a book? Well, it's it kind of it was born out of the five of us um, all know each other because we're all we all work in um, the kind of the social sciences in the in the UK. Eric is in Australia, um, but we know Eric because he's been over to to visit all of us. And we we started having conversations about sleep and technology, and we were thinking of maybe starting a project, doing some research, um, start thinking about writing about the relationship between sleep and technology. We had lots of online meetings, and then each of us kind of thought we could bring our own expertise to to different elements of the book, and it just kind of spiraled from there. It did take us many years. <laughs> to get to a book. So what was the conclusion? I mean, in terms of prescriptive, I understand that the sociology of sleep is interesting in its own right, and you did a lot of interesting interpretation of science fiction and some historical analysis. What advice would you give in, in terms of what we should and shouldn't be wary about sleep? Um, should, we, should we be concerned about getting more sleep, less sleep, better sleep, or perhaps stop thinking about sleep altogether? I think for me, one of one of the main um, one of the main arguments in the book is around sleep inequalities. So we've already discussed that a little bit, but I think it's something that has been overlooked. Um, so in lots of the imagined imagined opportunities around sleep technology, you know, the benefits of new medicines, etc., of of new tech, wearable tech, for example, or sensors that might be embedded in pajamas or beds, or there's there's kind of very little acknowledgement that actually these opportunities to access better sleep quality or different knowledge about sleep are not open to everybody. Um, And, you know, technology 
could have very very different impacts depending on where it's uh, where it is used and who it's used by. So well, I wonder. Um, uh, I, I wonder, Katie, whether all this is this what you call sleep inequality is a consequence of our increasingly feudalized world of radical inequalities of one kind or another. You're in the Midlands of England, which is a very poor part of the country, uh, in a very poor country itself. Uh, I'm in California and Noor in San Francisco, where there's astonishing disparities between wealth and poverty. Uh, isn't that just the inevitable, the, what you call sleep inequality, is an inevitable consequence of our increasingly aristocratic um, structure of, of society? And you can't really change that. I'm not, I'm not excusing it, but you wouldn't begin to address inequality through sleep. Yeah, I think you know it is. It is an absolute consequence of 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 our lives. It's you know the inequalities that we see in our waking lives. They persist into our sleep lives, and I think that that is something that hasn't been given enough recognition, and that you know that is something that needs to be to be thought of more when we think about you know access to things like education for example if you're not sleeping well at night then that can have a really big knock-on effect of how you're performing in school in the day and then your exam results thinking that because the the school leavers exam results have recently come out in the UK yesterday um, and I was thinking you know having that access to a safe and secure sleep environment can have such knock-on effects in the other areas of our life as well and it's not it's not something access to quality sleep that I hear a lot being spoken about in public health agendas and things like that, for example. Well, finally, Catherine, uh, I usually take a nap in the afternoon. Uh, good or bad? How, uh, you're a sociologist of sleep rather than of napping. What do you make of incessant nappers like myself? I love napping. I, I would I would have a nap every day if I could as well. Um, I think from from my experience, from speaking to people about their sleep um, and their sleep patterns and their sleep practices, I would just say, you know, don't worry about trying to fit yourself into some kind of norm if you don't. Whatever works for you works. If you feel good after you've woken up, then that's the main thing. 